Ah, well, if you would open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'd like to read the passage that's before us today. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, our text is 29 through 37. And uh, just to set this in our mind. Apostle John writes, verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on whose behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God, Again the next day, John standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Where we continue our study of the Gospel of John is we continue to follow the Apostle John's record of the one whom God sent as the first witness to the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, as we have learned, is giving the evidence or proofs that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And so these are like reasons in a court of law, evidences why you and I should believe what the record says about Jesus Christ and why you should give your life to follow him. And so our first witness is John the Baptist. He had come calling, as we learned last week, he had come calling Israel to repentance in preparation of their souls for the coming of the Messiah. That's verses 19 through 28. Our text, 29 through 37, he testifies to the truth of Jesus, calling people to follow him. And in the flow of thought here, he's been, Jesus has been promised as coming. He has been said, he's in your midst and now it's, now look, he's here. Look, he is here. The Baptist, as we learn, we'll just, don't get confused here. We're not talking Southern Baptist or First Baptist. We're talking John the Baptist, as Max made clear last week so rightly, okay? We're not confused about that, right? So when I say the Baptist, we're not talking about the Baptist street or the, the Baptist church down the street. We're talking about John the Baptist, okay? The Baptist came not to make disciples of himself, but of the Messiah. He came to deflect people from following him to following Jesus Christ. His mission from God was to prepare them for the Messiah, to reveal the person of the Messiah and his mission. It is to direct the spotlight onto Christ. It is to draw all of our attention to him. As we saw from last Lord's Day, he came to make much of Christ and not of himself. This is the foremost sign of a genuine ministry from God. Whom does it exalt? Whom does it promote? If we walk away only praising the man, praising the preacher, praising the people serving, praising the music, then it's not being faithful to God, you see? Because we are here, if we are under the, the power of the Holy Spirit and directed by the Scriptures, we are here to make much of Christ. And that's to follow in the steps of John the Baptist. Later on in this gospel, we will see the Baptist will exclaim to his followers who are yet loyal to him, who are concerned that Jesus is gaining more followers than John the Baptist. And he says there, he, Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. It's as, as if he's saying to them, get away from me, right? It's not right for you to be here any longer. I'm here to point you to him. So get away from me and go to him. Stop following me and start following him. He said over and over that he's not the Messiah. We learned that last week. 
I'm not the Messiah. He's not the prophet. He's not Elijah. But he said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the path of the Lord. I'm here to point you to him. That's what every Christian ministry is to do, is to point you to Jesus Christ, not to get caught up in politics, not to get caught up in details of doctrine. It is primarily to focus climax on the top of the mountain. The top of the mountain is Jesus Christ. That's why we are here. That's why John the Baptist was sent. It's the same with the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says this, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, the same apostle said, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. You see, throughout the New Testament, all believers are called servants of Christ, slaves of Christ, soldiers of Christ, etc., etc. We are all here belonging to Jesus Christ, and our goal is to point others to him. It's to make disciples, as the Great Commission tells us in Matthew 28. It's to go into all the world and all the nations and make disciples, not of me, not of Max, not of this church, but of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so John the Baptist is the first in the, in the sense of coming to bear witness to who is Jesus Christ. And so, as we know from the, because the, we mentioned it so many times, the purpose of the gospel of John is found in chapter 20, verse 31, which says, and you should have this memorized before this week's over because we've been mentioning this, but these things have been written, gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why these are written. Coming then to our passage, chapter 1, verse 29 through 37, the Baptist faithfully carries out his mission by proclaiming the glories of Christ and pointing his listeners to follow Jesus. He bears witness to his humble sacrifice, and to his supremacy. There'll be other witnesses to follow, but this is the first one to come before the, the Supreme Court, if you will, and his, the chief witness is John the Baptist, and he will make bold proclamation in verse 29. He says he's the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. So we see his humble sacrifice. There'll be threefold testimony to the supremacy of Christ, in what follows. In verse 30, he is the one who came before John the Baptist. So he's, his supremacy is his preexistence. In verse 33, his supremacy is he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In verse 34, his supremacy is shown and that this is the Son of God. So you have this, the humble sacrifice in 29. You have his supremacy in 30, 33, and 34. You put it together. This is the world's only all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. There's only one, and it is this one, Jesus Christ, who is the lamb who is so exalted, as it was read in Revelation 5. Okay? So, let me catch my breath here. Um, why should we believe in this Jesus? And who should we take from here to into the, the neighborhoods around us is what we want to look at here in our text. First, let's look in verse 29. Notice how he is identified. In verse 29, the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is, as we learned last week, this is after the baptism of Jesus himself, which is recorded in Matthew 3. This is after the 40 days of being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. So he's coming probably from that wilderness area, and he comes to where John the Baptist is baptizing in the River Jordan. That's where John the Baptist sees him coming here. So he sees him coming, and John the Baptist has been preparing his people that have been coming for baptism for this very day. The one I've been preparing you for. Behold, which is a strong exclamation. It is a strong word to say, look, look, do you see him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a time. What a time. He's identified. Notice the very first thing that God wants them and us to know about Jesus Christ is that he is the lamb. He is the lamb. Notice it's not the Lord. It's not king. It's not omnipotent creator. All those things are true of Jesus Christ. But the first thing that the chief witness of God says about Jesus Christ is that he is the lamb. And what does lamb imply? How would these first listeners have understood that phrase? The Lamb of God. Well, Lamb, think of this. A Lamb is not very powerful. A Lamb's not very intimidating. They're not, actually, they're kind of stupid. But the Lord's not stupid, please. But what's in their mind? This is not a predator. This is not a bold animal that you get behind to protect yourself. They can't even defend themselves from any kind of predator. They're used for food and for clothing. But more importantly, they're used for sacrifice. 
in the mind of a first century Jew to behold the Lamb of God, what comes into their mind is this idea of sacrifice. A lamb was used in the Passover sacrifice. A lamb was led to slaughter in the prophecies of Isaiah 53. A lamb was offered in the daily sacrifices for Israel. This is all from Leviticus, Levitical law. A male lamb for the burnt offering in Leviticus 1. A lamb for the peace offering in Leviticus 3. A female lamb for the sins of the layman's ignorance in Leviticus 4. Lambs for the purification of a leper in Leviticus 14. It's used in the Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles, and the Day of Atonement. Lambs are used for sacrifice. So when a first century Jew hears, here is, look, behold, the lamb in their mind is a sacrificial victim. This is a lamb. So think of this. Let the lamb is God's chosen means of maintaining fellowship with sinful people. Go to, the, go to the book of Exodus and Leviticus. At the end of Exodus, God had the tabernacle. Moses finished the tabernacle. The tabernacle was designed by God. Moses completed it. The glory of the Lord came in the last chapter of the book of Exodus and filled the tabernacle with his glory, which is to show his presence and his acceptance of that which was built by Moses. Leviticus, then, is all about bloody sacrifices of sacrificial animals, primarily lambs, but not exclusively lambs, but the lamb is the main animal of sacrifice. That lamb, according to Leviticus, was the means by which holy God could be in the presence of sinful people. And so he provided the means. If you're going to approach me, you're going to sacrifice, and that's going to be because of your sin and my holiness. So here comes the lamb of God. In their minds, obviously, is an animal of sacrifice a lowly animal of sacrifice. But not only that, in our text, he's called the Lamb of God. Of God, God, of God. God is the possessor. God is the source. God is the owner of this Lamb. This phrase is only used here and in verse 36, a few verses later in the whole Bible. Lamb is used many times to refer to Jesus, but the Lamb of God is only used twice, and it's right here in our text. He is the Lamb of God. That's different from the Old Testament sacrifices because the lamb in the Old Testament was provided by me, a sinner. I went to my flock and I chose an unblemished lamb and I brought the lamb to the priest and I killed the lamb after putting my hand on his head and it was symbolic of transferring my sin and guilt to this innocent animal and I killed him and the priest applied the blood. That's all a graphic picture in the, in the, in the religion of the Israelites of how you approach a holy God. And so here's the Lamb of God. The Lamb not provided by you, but the Lamb provided by God. It's much like in Genesis 22, when Isaac was to be sacrificed by Abraham, and there was no animal going with them up to the top of the mountain, and Isaac asked Abraham, where is the Lamb? And God, uh, Abraham says, God will provide for himself a Lamb. It's like that. So here is the Lamb of God, the Lamb from God. The nature of a Lamb. Yes, it's used for sacrifice, but what else do we learn from the phrase, the Lamb of God? A Lamb is known for its meekness and submission and innocence, if you will. Isaiah 53, 7 says, Yet he did not open his mouth like a Lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. If you know anything about lambs, they don't fight once they feel they're, they're, they're done. Like when you shear, one guy can shear a grown sheep by just laying it on its back and putting it in a submissive um, position. They just quit. And you can just shear them, and they don't fight, and you let them go, and you grab another one. And one guy can shear if you're good, a couple hundred sheep a day, right? Because they're very submissive. A lamb, when they, I know this is graphic, but the Bible's full of blood, okay? So I hope we're used to blood. And a lamb, when they kill a lamb, you, what, you could take your finger and lift the head of a lamb to slit their throat. They don't fight you. You do that to a horse, he's allowed to kick you in the belly button, right? <laughs> right? But a lamb is very, is known for its meekness and submission. The lamb of God. The Lamb of God. He's known for, isn't he known for that? 
when he walked on this planet, the one to whom John the Baptist points is like a lamb in his character. In what way? Well, listen to Matthew eleven twenty nine from the words of Jesus himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's his nature. That's his characteristics that he's portraying when he walked on this planet. Or 2 Corinthians 10, 1. Apostle Paul writes, he says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, right? I who am meek when face to face with you and bold towards you when absent. He, he's, he, he's pleading with them from the per perspective of humility, humbleness, meekness. The opposite is arrogant and brash. Jesus Christ did not come with, with a Alexander the Great brashness. He came as a lamb, and a lamb who is meek, a lamb who is humble, a lamb who came in full submission to the Father to accomplish the eternal plan of redemption. In John 4, 34, later on, we'll read these words. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. A lamb in submission. Or how about Luke 22, 41 through 44? This is his suffering in Gethsemane before the cross. Listen to these familiar words. And he withdrew, Jesus, from them about a stone's throw away. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remember, he's about to suffer on the cross. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, this lamb. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. He came in full submission as a lamb, you see. Or how about Philippians 2.8? Being found in appearance as a man, he, Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came as a lamb. He came in full submission. He came as a sacrifice. This, this, this lamb describes his person, but why is that kind of person required? It's because of his mission, which back if you wandered away in John 1, 29, notice what it says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is a lamb that is required for the mission that God has designed. It is sin that is the issue. God sent his son to deal with our sin. First and foremost, this is the primary problem at hand. Nothing else goes, supersedes the problem of sin in anybody's life. Once sin is dealt with, all else doesn't really matter, really, in the eternal scheme of things. But sin is the problem. And he, God is the one who has designed the rescue. God is the one who's designed redemption. The son came in full submission and, and identified as a lamb and came with those characteristics. And he's the lamb from God, not from my flock, but from God's throne. And this lamb of God came to fulfill the mission of God, which was to take away the sin of the world. What is the problem of sin? The sin, think of this, God is concerned because sin separates humans from their creator. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from the life and the light of God so that we are spiritually dead and in spiritual darkness. We all enter in that way. Our entire being is corrupted with sin. The principle of sin is rebellion against God. This predisposition towards rebellion dominates every unregenerate person. It is our nature and it is our practice. It is our nature and it is our practice. Apart from Jesus Christ, we still battle sin. But... So our orientation as a result of the fall is away from God, not to God. In fact, the Bible says no one seeks for God, not one. Later in chapter 3, verse 19, we'll look at it in the months ahead. But our hearts and our, our, our affections are affected because it says in 319 of John that men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The Old Testament sacrifices, beloved, could not affect our sin nature. That lamb and all those hundreds of thousands and millions over the years that were slaughtered 
according to God's principle, was never intended to remove sin because they could not remove sin. They pointed to a greater sacrifice. You see, the blood's, but it's impossible, it says in Hebrews 10, 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But they were designed to point to a future sacrifice that could atone and wash away sin. And John Baptist says, look, there he is. There he is. Once for all, the sacrifice came. What a great reality to finally come to. I don't have to keep bringing an animal to the priest. Think of the burden of that. God's providing one. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away means to carry it off, literally. It means to pick it up and remove it. In John 2.16, that very same word is used when the Lord goes to clean the temple in 2.16 and they're making a Turkish bazaar out of the worship place of God. In verse 16, he says, to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. That same verb, same word is used here in 129, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He removes it. He's, it's put on his back and he carries it. Now notice it's the sin of the world. Sin as in singular, not in plural. Not the sins of the world, but the sin of the world. Sin as a whole. Sin as a disposition. Sin as a nature. Sin as a problem as a whole. Okay? That all independent in each individual acts of sin fit under the umbrella sin. Sin of the world. The entire human race as a result of Adam's sin in the garden is estranged from God and needs reconciliation. And through his sacrificial death, we know this, the Lamb of God takes away, carries away as far as the east is from the west, never to return again, never to be brought up in your face. You don't have to fear on judgment day that those sins that God says he once forgave, oh, I'm going to bring a couple more up just to make sure you're really saved. He's not going to do that. He takes it away in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God carries it away as far as the east is from the west. Never to be brought up. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore or carried our sins in his body on the cross. He took it upon himself. The Lamb of God has come, and the mission of God for him is to carry away the sin of the world, which is fascinating because it's of the world. It's not just for the Israelites. It's not just a Jewish Savior. He is the Savior of the world. Okay? Through the sacrifice of the Lamb, sins are propitiated and expiated. They are paid for so that the wrath of God is appeased, and they are removed so the believer is cleansed from the pollution. From the corruption. You could, if you'd like, for the sake of just doing something, turn to Isaiah 53, please. Isaiah 53. Very familiar text, I know, but read it afresh. And in this text here, you will notice the, the, the substitutionary aspect and the carrying away of our sins. And you will notice also the tense of the verbs of this passage this is 700 years before jesus was walking on the planet and yet it's written as a past tense which is fascinating look at isaiah 53 and how about if we just kind of picked and choose here starting in verse 4 notice what the 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 prophet isaiah writes under the inspiration of the spirit he writes in verse 4 surely our griefs he himself notice bore carried and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5, and he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his. The chastening for our well-being, shalom, fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Go to verse 10, please. But the Lord was pleased, Yahweh was pleased, to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, 
he will see it and be satisfied, propitiated. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, who is the lamb, by the way, will justify the many as he will bear, he will bear their iniquities. Finally, in verse 12, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And look at the last two lines here. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He bore the sin. He carried the sin of the world away. He is the world's only Savior. This is not teaching universalism. Not every single person on the planet is going to be saved because the Gospel of John says more, I think, over 100 times, believing, believing, right? Believe in him. In fact, 3.15 says whoever believes in him will have eternal life, right? Um, so so 3.15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So the emphasis is faith. So this is not a promise in verse 29 of universal salvation. What is it saying then? Is that of the whole planet, there is no place that is excluded from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if anybody from any place on the planet believes in this Jesus Christ to whom John the Baptist is pointing, they will have eternal life. It's for those who believe from any planet. We read in Revelation 5, from every tongue and people and nation and tribe and all, every place, right? Every ethnicity, every, every, every Oki and every Indian and every, every Ruski and every Ukrainian. And it, if they believe from those places, there's no parameters, there's no boundaries, there's no fences, there's no more veil to keep you away. It is to all the globe. There's only one Savior sufficient for your sins, and that's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He bore your sins. He's the only one who could do that. You see, he's the only one who could do that. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Have you looked to him? And John would put it in a present tense. Not only did you once begin looking, are you continually to look at him? Look, behold, there he is, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is not only the Savior for Israel, he is Savior for the Gentiles, for the entire world. He's the world's only legitimate Savior. He's the world's only acceptable sacrifice on their behalf. He's the only sufficient sacrifice. He's the only sacrifice the Father in heaven receives. John 4, 42, the Samaritan woman went back to her village, and Jesus came and started preaching there, and they said this, that we, this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Right? He's the world's only Savior. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's only one Savior for the world. He is the sufficient one. He is the substitution one, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That's the first thing in flow of thought in the Gospel of John. That's the first thing in John's testimony that God wants the people to know. First and foremost, he is the all-sufficient sacrifice that reconciles sinners to God. Look to him. Look to him. Okay? That's where God begins. And think about this. It's John the Baptist testifying, but it's actually God's testimony because God's the one who sent John the Baptist. It's God bearing witness through John the Baptist. It's evidence of God's love and mercy. For a world of lost sinners, praise God. So let us follow suit. Those of us who believe in and are looking to this Christ and continue looking to this Lamb of God, let us go out into this world like John the Baptist and point them to him by speaking of him. Now, this sacrifice that's mentioned in 29 is followed by his supremacy. And there's a threefold testimony from John the Baptist of why this one is sufficient is because of his supremacy that you're going to find here. Look at verse 30, uh, verse 30 please. The first one he mentions is that he is pre-existent. He is eternal. And we, we uh, saw this earlier, so I just mentioned verse 30. This is he, verse 30, on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So John, this is important to John the Baptist because he repeats this. He mentioned this first back in chapter 1, verse 15, verbatim, this phrase. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, John the Baptist last week acknowledged Christ's greatness, and in comparison, he wasn't even a worthy slave to untie his shoes. Jesus is so exalted, so far beyond John the Baptist, and he says, because he existed before me. We learn from John 1, 1, he was in the beginning with God. And we can go back to last week and hear a greater extension of that. John's just repeating that reality. 
that his supremacy begins and that he is preexistent. He is eternal. He has always existed. So think of this. The lamb who's come in meekness, the lamb who's come in submission to the father, the lamb who came to be sacrificed first and foremost is the eternal God of the universe. He's the God man in, in not so many in its simplicity. He's the God man. That's why his sacrifice is sufficient for every person who will ever place their faith in Jesus. He is sufficient. He is the eternal one. He goes on to say, look at verse 31. From this self-existent, he goes on to verse 31 and he says, I did not recognize him. I, I didn't know him in this way. I, I, it, there's no report other than when John the Baptist was in the womb and Mary came to Elizabeth. But outside of that, because they're cousins on, in earthly terms, John the Baptist and Jesus, and there's no scriptural record that the two ever met each other. Right? If they did, probably, okay. The point being made in 31 is John the Baptist did not recognize him, did not know him as the God-man, did not know him in this exalted way. Okay? But look what it says. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. It's fascinating. The reason John was sent to baptize was to make known Jesus Christ. Because verse 31 tells you the purpose of the, of the baptism of John was so that he might be manifest to Israel. And the word manifest means to shed light on it, to reveal. So the, it's the baptism of, that John the Baptist was sent to do, not only preparing the people for the coming Messiah, but when the Messiah came, it was to shed the light on him, and this is he. This is he. So it manifest him to Israel. It made him known. And then you get to verse 32. Look at what he says. John testified, saying, I have seen descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Stop there. How important is an eyewitness in any kind of setting? Here's an eyewitness. John the Baptist says, I, I, I saw this. I have seen the Spirit. And the way this word is put together, seen, is this, this idea, seen and I am in a fixed mode of seeing. It's like being etched on the inside of my cranium here. And so I'm constantly in this state of seeing the Spirit descending upon and landing and fixating on Jesus Christ. That's, it's how strong that impression was when he was in the waters of baptism, when Jesus Christ came to be baptized. He saw the Spirit. And this is saying here, I testified to that reality today over and over and over. It's fixed in my mind. It has this idea of conviction. And so I saw the Spirit in verse 32 descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Now, that's what he saw, okay? Now, this eyewitness gives this testimony that this lamb who takes away the sin of the world is the preexistent, eternal God-man. He's greater than John the Baptist because of his preexistence. He says, it was made known to me of Jesus' greatness, says John the Baptist, because in the waters of baptism, I saw the Holy Spirit fall down upon him and settle on him. I saw that, you see. And then you get to verse 33, and you begin to see what is the so what of this, okay, is, notice verse 33, I did not recognize him. I, I didn't know him in this fashion, verse 33, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, that's God, God the Father is the one who sent John the Baptist. So he's saying in 33, God the Father made known to me, notice in 33, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So get this. <laughs> the supremacy of Christ is made known to John the Baptist by divine revelation. How did he come to know who John was really? The true identity of Jesus Christ is by divine revelation. You do not go and find out for yourself. You can't get there from here because of sin nature and a corrupt mind. No one gets to God from their own mind. God must come into your mind and say, boom, let there be light. And then you see the glory of Christ, you see. It's divine revelation. It's sovereign grace. It is sovereign grace that explodes in your mind and shows you the reality of Jesus Christ and the true identity of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the preexistent one. He is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. That's fascinating. Baptizes in the Holy Spirit. We'll, um, we'll just touch on it because much more will be said in John 3. But just to make mention here, okay? 
What is the significance of this verse 33 in baptizing in the Spirit is that He is the one who directs the Holy Spirit. He's the one who directs the third person of the Trinity. Here you have the Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, directing the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, into lives. What is the result of the Spirit coming into your life is He makes you alive. He gives you life. He's, it's, 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 he, you were once dead in the very moment the Spirit entered your life because Jesus poured Him into your life and baptized you and boom, and you believe. That's what He's saying. He is much greater than John the Baptist because John the Baptist only baptized in water. And that water did nothing to your inner person. That water did nothing to your soul. It did nothing. Nothing. And if you're not a believer, it still did nothing but got you wet. You took a bath. Max always says when you baptize as an unbeliever, all you did is got wet, irritated, maybe took a bath. You know? But if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, the baptism is symbolic of something, right? What John the Baptist is saying, what he testifies to is, I saw this. I saw this, judge. I saw this, people. I was there, man. I was in the waters. And here he come. And I saw the Spirit descend like a dove. The Spirit's not a dove, by the way. Okay? But like a dove, it came down and settled on this person here and remained the key to that is in the Old Testament idea, remember David said, please, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Christian, you never have, that's not your song. Throw that song away. That is not your song. The Spirit will never leave you because if it does, you, if he does, you quit being a Christian, <laughs> right? He's the one who makes you alive, okay? All right, now get this. The Holy Spirit comes and settles on, remains on, takes up residence on Jesus Christ. Doesn't come and go, come and go, come and go. Like Saul, Saul had the spirit to be king, but then when he became evil, remember, God gave him an evil spirit in exchange for the Holy Spirit. And David has seen that. And so David says, I've experienced the Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was told by God the Father, by divine revelation, that the one whom the Spirit comes and doesn't go away, he's the one. He's the one. The Lamb of God is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, not water. Water cannot touch your inner person. Water cannot touch your mind. That's why sprinkling babies is ridiculous. What does that do? To irritate a kid, right? Don't do that. Baptism follows spirit baptism. Water baptism follows spirit baptism. That's a whole different story, but this is talking about the spirit baptizing, okay? Being immersed into the Spirit, being submerged in the Spirit. It's to be indulged, enveloped, covered. It's like, it's like a fish, right? A fish is in the water, and the water is in the fish. Christians are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the Christian. And He's the one that gives you life and transforms you, conforming you into the image of Christ Jesus. Listen to some of these. And how, think of this. John the Baptist knows this. Because God told him so, right? Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. Listen to some of these passages. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus speaking, by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And then catch this. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Whom the Son wills to reveal him. Okay? That's the Son doing. Matthew 16 Remember they asked, Jesus asked his followers, who do, you, who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Right? He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, never feared taking first place and answering any question, says, you are the Christ, the Mashiach, right? The anointed one. Next line, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, oh, Peter, you're so smart. All oh, that learning finally paid off, man. You made it. No, he didn't say that. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Divine revelation reveals that this is the true identity of Jesus Christ, you see. 
Christ's true, true identity is divinely revealed to the Baptist who then takes this heart conviction of that reality and points people to follow Jesus. And if God so chooses, beloved, if he chooses to work in their hearts, he will convert them. But you and I, like John the Baptist, have been worked upon by grace. We have been brought to this reality and have been shown the true identity of Jesus. And so we point people to the one we're convinced that God said he is. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because God showed it to you. And you have that conviction, and you take someone who hasn't heard that yet, and you say, you point them to him with such a conviction that you're willing to lay your life down. No matter what boundaries we cross, mountains we go over, and countries we go to, we need to point him to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow. Jesus baptizes, submerges in the Spirit of God. It's interesting because the Spirit is often associated with power. Just a couple verses here. In Acts 10, 38, Peter is sharing testimony with Cornelius, the first Gentile convert in Acts 10. And he says this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So there is identifying Christ as the one anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. The power to do what he did um, uh, was from the Spirit of God. The point of this is that Christ has the authority to transform lives through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Listen to Acts 1, 4, and 5. A couple of verses I want to read to you. Gathering them together, Christ does. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Chapter uh, 1, verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. What is it looking forward to in Acts 1 is to Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and the baptism of the Spirit first happened there. Okay? Verse, chapter 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In Acts 2... The miracle of the languages proclaiming the glories of God was evidence of the baptism of the Spirit in that text. Okay? Acts eleven fifteen. This is this is uh, when the the record of Peter to the Jerusalem council to the Jerusalem Christians of what God did to the Gentiles at Cornelius's house. In Acts eleven, he gives this accounting. He says this: As I began to speak, Peter speaking. The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Where is that? Pentecost. So this is Gentile Pentecost, if you will. And I remembered the word of the Lord. Listen now. How he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when you connect those, you see what's going on when, when the Spirit descended on Christ in the waters of baptism, and John saw that, and God said to John, by revelation, the one that you see that happening, that is the one who's going to baptize in the Spirit of God. And we see in the book of Acts that playing out. And every subsequent person who's ever been, who's ever come to faith, has been baptized by the Spirit, in the Spirit. By God. Yeah? Praise God. John 3, much more to be said. Okay? Now let's gather up my slack here for one last push. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that sacrifice is sufficient because it's from God, but this is the supremacy of him, okay? Is that he is the preexistent eternal one. He is equal with God. He has no beginning. He is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, in our text, in John 1, verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The humble, meek Lamb of God, His preexistent, baptizes in the Spirit. He is the Son of God. Notice again the emphasis on eyewitness. Verse 34, I myself 
And myself is in the text, so it's, a, it's, a, it's for emphasis. It doesn't have to be there to make sense. Because listen, I have seen and testified. That makes sense. But notice the emphasis of the text. I myself have seen. So he's really emphasizing his experience, his personal eyewitness account. Why should we believe in the record of John the Baptist is that he was there? And to, and to go against an eyewitness is kind of foolish until the witness has proven to be a liar. But here is an eyewitness, and he says in 34, I have seen, I'm in this fixed, settled conviction of seeing in my mind, and I have testified, I bear witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. This is a permanent witness. Son of God. Do you remember in the waters of baptism in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And then he heard this. Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist knows who Jesus' true identity is by divine revelation. If you know Jesus in the same way, it's by divine revelation. Okay? God's grace has come and opened your eyes. What does sonship imply? Think of this. Two things that, as I narrow this down. Sonship implies a unique relationship with the Father. The scriptures state that the Son will hold a privileged position of Messiah. The scriptures say that the Son of God and Messiah are equal, one and the same. The Christ is the Son of God. To be the son of God, then, is to be the rightful king of Israel. Okay? Um, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, you remember the uh, genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel is to, de is to show to the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth is the rightful king. And how does he prove that? He goes back and says, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, he, he fulfills the Davidic lineage. Psalm 2, 7 says that God's anointed, God's Christ, is the king, and he is God's son. So the Davidic promise of having a king on the throne of Israel forever is none other than a son of David, who is also the son of God. Okay, that, that's understood in the scriptures. So when, when Nathaniel is it 49? He says this. Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's a, that's a correct conclusion from Nathaniel when he was so moved about Jesus knowing where he was. Okay? But notice in the mind, to be the king of Israel is to be associated with the son of God. And the son of God is to be the king of Israel. He is the Messiah. Psalm 110, uh, didn't Jesus say to the Pharisees, whose son is he? Right? right? And... Um, then why does, he's the son of David, then why does he say, why does he call him Lord, right? Why does he call him Lord if he's the son of David? He's greater than the son of David. He is the son of God. Okay. John the Baptist is convinced by divine revelation and what he has seen, the spirit descending upon him, knowing that he's preexisted before him, and he says, I testify that this one right here, Jesus of Nazareth, is the son of God. But there's something even greater than that, that John's gospel brings out even more. In John 5, 17 and 18, it speaks of his nature or his essence. Okay, listen to this. John 5, 17 and 18. But he answered them, Jesus did, my father is working until now and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath in their mind, but also was calling God his own father. He had, he had the audacity to say that God in heaven is his daddy. And what's the problem with that? Making himself equal with God. So to be the son of God is to, is to be of the same essence. Levi is, doesn't have the essence of a pigeon or a dog. He has the essence of a man because he's your son. So then the Son of God has the same essence. He's of the same, same makeup, right? He's the Son of God. Therefore, he's deity, the Son of God. 
And so the Jews know exactly what he's saying when he says the Father and I are one and they take up stones to kill him. So when it says Son of God, it's talking not only a privileged position, but privilege in his essence, his person. He is greater than John the Baptist because he's deity. He is preexistent. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. He is equal with God. And this is the one who he says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an all-sufficient sacrifice for the entire world because it's God in flesh hanging on a cross, taking our sins upon him. John the Baptist was faithful to his tasks. Look at 35 and 37. And again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples trying to push him away, you know, get out of here. <laughs> Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus and, he, and as he walked and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. Look, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. The two disciples in 37, look what they did there. They began to follow him. To follow him. So then we finish with this. Do you see Jesus as the Lamb of God? Do you see him as the all-sufficient sacrifice? Do you see why it is worthwhile to entrust your soul to him? Because not only is he a sacrifice in your place, he is wholly sufficient to pay, to take away your sin and to grant you eternal life. Do you see him like that? Have you seen him before, and are you continuing to see him that way? Believer, if that's you, you are constantly beholding him in that fashion. He is the Lamb of God. We partook of the table. He is the Lamb that takes away the sin. He is sufficient. He is God in flesh, hanging on a cross, proven by his resurrection. But perhaps you're here, and you've never looked to him. You've never, you never heeded the word of the Baptist. Well, listen to the preacher. Behold. Lamb of God, the one and only sacrifice for your sin, the only one who can take all your sin away and make you acceptable before righteous God. Do you see him? Look to him. Look to him now. Keep looking to him. What does it take to look? Faith. Faith. Trust him. And then go from here and point others to him in the power of the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, Father, I pray that you will help us to live in a manner worthy of his name and help us to go out and to point all people to him. May, may we see every person outside of Christ according to their desperate need of beholding this one. Help us to be faithful to proclaim him as he is, to speak of his meekness but to speak of his substitutionary sacrifice but also to speak of his sufficiency because he is God he has always existed he baptizes in the spirit he makes us alive he has that authority and Lord he is the son of God we'll give you the praise today for you are worthy in Jesus name amen